Hey, gang, you know what's on my mind more than deleting all the annoying kids shows that show up in my YouTube watch history from over quarantine? Better marketing decisions. Yep, that's right. That's why I'm so excited to be supported by my friends at PureCars, who put the power of data and superior information into the hands of dealers where it belongs. Use PureCar to make better marketing decisions and get better results. Visit PureCars.com to get a free, no-risk, no-obligation digital strategy analysis today. That's PureCars.com. Too often, um, what we suffer with in this industry, from my observation, is we think that by simply purchasing the best hammer at Home Depot, that the pictures will magically hang themselves. And to your point, you need to have the great tool, but then you need to know it, it's it's not about just having it. Then you have to do something with it. You still have to know what to do with it. And so to have this tool that removes the bias, as you were talking about earlier, and helps you understand specifically where you need to allocate or put your budget into. Now, I do want to ask you this. It's not controversial at all, but it is maybe my controversial question of the day. Is there a line in the sand, and I'm not looking for names, but is there a line in the sand where you go, oh yeah, there are certain channels that seem to across the board on average perform way better than others? So the answer is yes. But the biggest blind spot is that vendors and, and dealers and their marketing teams create a bias. And I think that is the biggest way to reduce your efficiency of your media spend and ultimately lower your profitability as a dealer. So None of us have lived through a pandemic and it's been terrible. The auto industry has recovered exceptionally quick and many dealers posted incredible profitability in 2020. But what we learned was in the blink of an eye, all predictions in January and February went out the window. All marketing budgets went out the window. What we had bias in, whether we thought search performed exceptionally well, we quickly learned that Facebook and video dominated, absolutely killed it. In an incredible way, we saw far more success in a near real-time way on those channels. And if our organization was set up in a way like a typical ad agency or the way most dealers structure their budgets, you would have in a linear fashion just kind of reduced budget to what your dealer principal says you must not exceed as we're going through right. rough times in end of March, April, and maybe into May. And for us, we've, we've learned for now 12, 13 plus years that data is the core of our business, but data is information overload. It's a little bit like when I'm in New York and you see Wall Street, all you see is the screens with tickers and data points. I'm not smart enough to look at that data and make decisions. I'm overwhelmed. And when you add all other components 
that a dealer must be looking at to run a successful business, you get into this data overload. So what do you do? You focus on muscle memory. You keep spending on search. Why? Because it's worked for the last decade. You keep spending on listing sites. Why? Because you've done that since they started. And and I'm using these more for reference, not for actual statements. Right. But by having this muscle memory, you ultimately have a bias. So for us, it's back to data. If we can transform this data into what we like to call pure information, if you can make it proven, just like going to Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, you'd hope if you click on the stocks tab, there's no controversy. If it says a stock is $100, it's $100. So it's proven. It should be displayed in an understandable way and it must be reliable. So if you go to these websites and every other time the data is not there, you're not going to go back. So when we think of data that becomes proven and understandable and reliable information, you have an advantage. But, But when you really start filtering this information and asking yourself, What do we need to be focused on? It's the information that ultimately is executable. So if you you look at key KPIs that dealers have looked at for over a decade, and I'm going to use cost per click as an example. If if a dealer calls and says, we want to switch to pure cars, and we want to switch because we want you to decrease our cost per click, Besides explaining all the reasons why that's a bad idea, mm-hmm. if, the, if the ask is to lower cost per click, the answer is absolutely. And you may say, well, I don't know what it is. I'd say I don't care what it is. Show me the keywords they're buying in the geographic area. Let me sort the buy from highest cost per click to lower. And let me stop buying the, half, the, the, the top 50%. And guess what happens to your average cost per click? It's dropped. Is that a wise decision? Probably not. So to us, that's a good data point that oftentimes we we think of this as an additional blind spot. Dealerships gravitate towards KPIs. They're very competitive and they're very successful because of their drive to continuously improve. But to us, you really want to be focused on acquisition cost. You want to be focused on lifetime value. You want to be thinking like an e-commerce store does in less gravitating to a KPI that doesn't actually change anything in your financial statement. Because if you're hyper-focused on things like cost per click, you can lower that number and think you're winning. But what you're really doing is not bidding on a term in this, in this one channel example being search right. that may be on the vehicle that actually needs more eyeballs to sell. Yeah. You know what I love about- And that about- fundamental shift really helps. Yeah. So clearly explained, you know, and this is why the, the scenario that you've just explained, muscle memory, the, the bias of muscle memory, the idea of this KPI that we think is so important. This is one of the reasons why dealers are stuck in this hyperloop of constantly seeking to drive down cost per click, but still not seeing results. Like they're, they're fleeing vendor after vendor. They, they change vendors like they change their socks because they're still not getting results, outcomes um, where it matters most. I love that you brought up lifetime value. There needs to be more conversations about lifetime value. I was at a conference, well, I guess a couple of years ago now, well, about a year and a half. And 
somebody brought up lifetime value and where would you look for it? Because traditionally, at least amongst this group that, that I was with, you know, there was still a bias towards going for the baby boomer car shopper. And they were shy of the millennial and now Gen Z. Is that what we're on? Yep. Um, and, and the individual on stage pointed out that if you were interested in increasing lifetime value, just at face value on a car purchase, like not even thinking about after sale service and support and all that, you're disregarding a group of people, i.e. the millennial, who are already on their fourth or fifth vehicle purchase, who are making more than you think they are, and who probably have six or seven, eight maybe vehicle purchases ahead of them versus this segment that you think has all the money and and you know, doesn't, doesn't necessarily have one or two vehicles left in their purchase process. But then you think about how that translates to fixed operations and all of the after sales support that you could be offering somebody that, that you could through the e-commerce model, um, translate into generational wealth for your business. So I think what's really interesting about lifetime value is if you looked behind the curtains with a private equity group or a venture capitalist looking at a business that has reoccurring revenue or has any, any revenue for that matter, you would say, what is your customer acquisition cost? $10. What is your lifetime value? $5. That's a problem, right? (laughs) If you see you can acquire a customer for $10 and the lifetime value of that customer is $100, it means if the available market is large enough, you can keep hitting the gas, decreasing that spread a little bit to capture more market share and then back off and be a really successful big business. Now, I respect that I'm dumbing this down for illustration purposes, but where I'm going with it is to us, customer acquisition costs, you need to think about the lifetime value and we can break it out by age group. But if you look at your service revenue, and you look at the service revenue you have and you break it out by the type of vehicle that they purchased from you. And then you look at things like where they live. Those two slices alone will give you some insight. Now, could we spend the next decade continuously refining that? The answer is yes. But for the purposes of a podcast, just think about this. A friend of mine who I grew up with called me from Metro Detroit. And he was really excited that he saved enough money to lease a new 330 BMW. First BMW, truly pumped, awesome for, you know, really excited. And he gets social anxiety and couldn't stand the thought of negotiating at a car dealer. So he says, Jeremy, can you help? I said, yeah, I always like pressure testing. What's the experience like when I'm not calling a friend saying, all right, do you have this cool car? Right. So, I sent a lead in to the local dealer that is three miles from his house on behalf of him and said, what is the best price on this stock number? There's one in Toledo that I'm looking at that is almost identical. Both are interesting. What is your best price? Price came back near retail. We reach out to the Toledo dealer and say, live in Metro Detroit. Can you beat this price? And guess what? They beat it by $3,000. He drove 55 minutes, got his car, loved the experience. But he's unlikely to go back 
what's the reason to drive back to Toledo? You have maintenance included, go to the local dealership. Right. It should have been the other way around. In this climate, there's a finite supply of vehicles. You can't just replenish them as quickly as you sell them. And, And the pandemic accelerated this thesis. The dealer who knew that this first time buyer, which generally will buy again within BMW, is 3.1 miles away. They should have done whatever it took to earn his business because the probability that he would service at that dealership is far higher than a customer in Toledo. But it didn't happen. So we see that in retail, you focus on customer acquisition costs and profit per unit. In service businesses, it's about lifetime value. An auto retailer today is a hybrid. They sell a car. The front end of the business says I made $1,300 gross or $3,300 gross between front and back end, and they're done. And then you have the back side of the business where you have this opportunity to have a reoccurring customer who comes to you to service. And by the way, It also helps the front end of the business data mine to understand when they have positive equity or when their lease is coming up. And it gives them a competitive advantage to acquire their vehicle or acquire this customer back and do it in a way less competitive than going to a Mannheim auction lane. And the net result is it's this flywheel that if you spin it properly, you create excellence. And if you look at the best retailers, they've done just this. If you look at the best dealer groups in this country, they've done exactly this. They understand that acquiring a customer for a little bit more in an area where you have a 10 to 1 probability of servicing that customer, it's probably worth the extra six bucks versus saying I sold that car to a guy in Tennessee when you're a Metro Detroit dealership. It's irrational unless you believe you don't have a buyer close enough who will ultimately service. So as we talk about blind spots and you think about lifetime value and you expand it to removing bias, you really want to acquire the customer at the lowest acquisition cost and you want to attempt to find the customer that has the highest probability of seeing you post-sale. And if you do everything right for them post-sale, you keep this customer coming back. And that's, that is the one thing that the dealers that just continuously win in a market, they're doing, even if they don't articulate it this way, they're subconsciously doing it exceptionally well. Yeah. This is, this hits close to home because my wife and I purchased her SUV at a local dealership predicated upon the thesis of, well, they're two miles from my front door. So we'll go to who's closest. They said they had the vehicle we wanted, but the the buying experience ended up for, I'll spare you the details as Steve Martin says, but it was an awful buying experience, but we were so deep into it that it was like, okay, just get us the car now. But I will not drive to that dealership to get it serviced. I will take it to the closest dealership to my office. So we will actually do a vehicle swap because the, the dealership closest to my office has a way better service experience. So I'm like, I'm not even going to buy. Yeah, okay, great. You got the front end of this deal. I'm not going back to you ever again to service it, though.
I'm Michael Cirillo, and you've been listening to the Dealer Playbook Podcast. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button wherever you're listening right now. Leave a rating or review and share it with a colleague. If you're ready to make big changes in your life and career and want to connect with positive, nurturing automotive professionals, join my exclusive DPB Pro community on Facebook. That's where we share information, ideas, and content that isn't shared anywhere else. I can't wait to meet you there. Thanks for listening.